Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. It's 3.30. Oil and gas pricing is completely up in the air. Um, much more potential volatility in the next couple of months for both oil pricing and gas pricing than is typically the case. With gas pricing, it's all about weather. A number of the experts are predicting that because there's more gas production that was anticipated by about three or four bees a day, and this is in the market that consumes just under 100 bees a day, the more gas production of the Haynesville and, and the, and the uh, Permian, that, that that gas pricing, which out in the futures price uh, for 23 and 24 is like 450, when we get there, the late, late 23 or early 24, will be as low as $3. Now, I don't subscribe to that, but it's it's gradually becoming, I, I wouldn't say consensus view, but half the people that that write and try to predict future pricing are saying that. So that, that makes gas pricing very controversial. In the near term, good cold weather has kind of moved current pricing up in the $7 range, but, but there is that underlying sentiment about the second half of 23. And basically what they're saying is more gas production than we anticipated. And uh, the LNG demand is, is takes a while to build these facilities. The one facility that was down that definitely hurt pricing through the summer was Freeport. But apparently Freeport is, is coming up. The largest taker there is a Japanese company. And they say that they'll be back at 80% by the end of December. So that's good because there was some sentiment out there that it would take until March to get Freeport up. On oil pricing, it's very interesting now from a macro point of view because OPEC Plus is going to meet, not in person. They had an in-person meeting last month, but they're meeting online this month. or December 4th, actually. But they're going to meet online. And there was some kind of trial balloons put out a couple of weeks ago that having reduced production by 2 million barrels a day uh, on December 4th uh, for the next month, they were going to increase it by half a million barrels a day. Apparently, what they're worried about is the date right after December 4th, which is December 5th, which is the date that has existed for months, you know, since, I don't know, May or June where the European Union, all 27 countries, have agreed that they will not take or purchase Russian oil unless it's pipeline connected. They, they had to make that unless it's pipeline connected to get Bulgaria and other countries like that to agree. And in the European Union, to make a decision like this, you have to have all 27 countries agree. Now, the U.S. Treasury, because they were worried uh, because of the election, and the price of gasoline about oil production in Russia coming down and having a fly up in oil pricing. I think after the election, after the Democrats did pretty well in the election, they're not so worried, but they came up with this price cap program, the US Treasury did. And the price cap program was gonna be organized by insurance 
or oil cargoes. When you go and pick up an oil cargo, you want insurance on the boat because, say, an average size cargo is a million barrels, a million barrel ship. Uh, VLCC would be two or two and a half million barrels, but a, a million barrel ship at $90 a barrel is $90 million. So no one's going to pick up a cargo or move with a cargo unless it's uh, insured. And the insurance is generally a Western phenomenon. The, the, the Soviets or the Chinese don't have their own insurance companies. What the Chinese can do is they can say to their refiners, don't worry about whether or not you have insurance. We'll backstop you if, if the cargo's lost somehow. So they're, they're leaning on the insurance companies to not participate in transactions where the Russian seller, you know, Rosneft or Lukoil or, or whomever, is getting more than the cap. And they want to set the cap at $70. A number of countries, including Poland, have been complaining that that cap is too high, given Russia's misbehavior in the Ukraine, and want to set it lower. I think the reason the U.S. and, and the other larger European countries want to set it at 70 is because that's about where the oil is priced. They want to introduce the system without causing the Russians to do something like withhold oil production, like the way they've withheld gas production. And so completely uncertain what's going to happen between now and, say, the middle of December. We don't know what the Russians are going to do. We don't know whether the European Union is finally going to agree on $70 price cap. Most people in the business, uh, uh, investors and operating people in the business, think the price cap idea is kind of nutty and not necessary. It's just completely unclear what's going to happen. The range, just to give you, you know, if you talk to say, an operating person in the business, the range for, say, month ahead pricing could be anywhere from $60 to $120. I mean, it, it, it could get re pretty chaotic. And I think the reason that OPEC said they might increase half a million barrels is they're sending a signal that, that they would not let the market get too chaotic on the upside which is typical of, of OPEC behavior, especially typical of Saudi behavior or Saudi and the Emirates, uh, who have, are the ones with the extra capacity in OPEC. So remains to be seen how it's going to work out for someone who follows on gas from investment or an operating point of view. It's fascinating to watch this all play out. How much difference it's going to make from an investment point of view? Probably not that much. Right. The oil price has been weak and Clearly, the Saudis and the Emirati, they want a somewhat higher oil price than they've seen in the last week or two. And there's been a little bit of contango. Contango is the near month is less than the far month, which generally means oil prices are coming down. That means oil is fully supplied. And that's not generally a good sign. When you see contango, generally, you want to get out of oil equities. Or that, that's, that's kind of a rule of thumb. The contango, I think, has something to do with the European winter. I think Europe filled up their tanks so much of not only gas and LNG, but also the kinds of product you use if you're a industrial customer that was cut off from the gas to keep the residential grid up. So I, I think that's the reason for the contango. But once again, as we get into January and February, we'll, we'll know a little better. I have, uh, from a macro point of view, Obviously, it's in the news and China's having a heck of a time with the uh, COVID and trying to come out of this COVID lockdown. 
uh, all kinds of things are happening here that will affect uh, not just energy companies, but companies across the board who have dependence or interdependence with China. I, I don't know what to expect there. I mean, every time they seem to try to lighten up, then they get lots of cases and they tighten back up again. You've all seen pictures and, and uh, newsfeed, you know, protests, how much impact that has on the leadership of China, you know, doesn't seem to have that much impact. It does affect oil because China is a huge consumer of oil. And to the extent their economy is flat or slightly declining, that doesn't help the oil market. So it's hard to predict what OPEC's going to do. In terms of other macro commentary, you know, at, at Republic, it wasn't a red wave. It was kind of a red ripple with a, I don't know, three or four seat majority. The Republicans are going to control the House. That obviously will slow down a lot of plans that the Democrats otherwise would have tried to execute. I think gridlock, generally speaking, for investors, I think history will show and, and the next couple of years will show gridlock is good for investors. In terms of the Federal Reserve, I think the next meeting, they're going to go up 50 basis points, not 75. I think the only question is whether they, you know, where they're going to finally stop. I, I think that they will and should get to a point where the the rate is, the Fed funds rate is at least 100 basis points more than the inflation rate. Now, the inflation rate the Fed uses is, is a PCR, it's personal consumption, something or other. And it, it doesn't have such a big weighting on rent as the CPI does. So, you know, I think it's now around 6%. If it continues to trend down and it's down to five or four and a half, then you would think a five and a half percent Fed funds rate would be enough and they probably hold it for a bit. There is some sentiment out there that the job market is so strong, and we see it certainly in the energy industry, and I think in other businesses, other than tech where they're laying off people, no one's laying anyone off because they, it's been so hard to add employees. No one wants to take a step like that. So I have a little trouble seeing something defined as a recession without employment loss, where you actually not not adding jobs in a in a month, but actually losing jobs in a month. If you just look at the uh, the definition of recession, it's real decline in GMP. Well, in the first quarter of twenty two, there was a real decline, small one percent. Then there was in the second quarter. I haven't announced yet. I don't think the third quarter, but generally two quarters make a recession. Well, you can't have a recession when you're adding two, three hundred, four hundred thousand jobs a month, and where the number of uh, job openings exceeds the number of people looking for jobs. I mean, that, 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 that's just not a recession. So maybe it's the case that we're just normalizing our interest rates and, and we may not even have, you know, forget soft landing, we may not even have a recession is, is one of the possible outcomes. The thing I worry the most about, and I, you know, every Wednesday I talk about this, is the Fed balance sheet, which got to nine trillion, really should be only about two trillion. It went from two to four or four and a half and then came back to four as an experiment led by Ben Bernanke, newly, newly awarded a Nobel Prize, which you know was probably not a good idea, which was during regular times had the Fed increased the money supply by buying treasuries. That was probably a significantly poor idea. And, and uh, I think history will show it's a poor idea. Now the Fed has a problem of getting the Fed balance sheet back to where it should be. 
and that pulls liquidity out. You can't blame what happened in cryptocurrency on that because that would have happened anyway. I mean, those people were, you know, no controls and, you know, an enormous amount of bad behavior. So that would have happened. Where you look for the cracks is uh, less than developed countries, uh, U.S. dollar liabilities, uh, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, South Africa, places like that, Chile, uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina. Well, Argentina is always in trouble. So far, those people are doing okay. But, but what happens is the U.S. currency gets stronger. You owe your liabilities in U.S. currency and you're making it in your own currency. So you're getting a terrible fine. So far, that's holding okay. So maybe, maybe we can take the Fed balance sheet down by $90 billion a month or a trillion a year. And maybe, maybe there are no, you know, maybe we just had so much liquidity in our economy. Maybe, maybe, no, certainly stock market prices are low and probably real estate, you know, home, home prices and values and whatnot will be down. But we may come through this okay. So there's a fairly optimistic assessment. I'm going to stop. I'm, we're about halfway through the 30 minutes. I just want to see if Mike or Jason have anything to add to my uh, initial comments. No, not in particular. I uh, I think that I agree with you on the Bernanke thing. They probably awarded the Nobel Prize a little early, especially given the timing of this year. Jason? Yeah. No, sir, you said it best. Those who have been part of these sessions on investments, which we started in Oyster Bay 20 years ago, where I first met Mike, remember that I had like 30 pages of notes. And uh, when we went from not doing it in person and, uh, and doing it on the phone because of COVID, uh, I frankly, I was busy and I, I, I stopped updating those notes. We're through sailing season and I have a little more time. Betsy and I go to Oyster Bay Thursday. We're out there by Thursday afternoon and I have a little more time away from Yorktown activities so I'm adding these pages back. And those of you on the phone will remember 30 pages. Uh, there was a big emphasis on looking at the historical record. In other words, a company like uh, a company like Lowe's, which has been a huge winner, the competitor with Home Depot, have a duopoly with Home Depot. You'd see five years of numbers for Lowe's. And that was very useful. As I faced, you know, kind of replicating that, that old 30 pages, I came up with what I think thought, thought at the beginning, and I think now that I'm, you know, seven or eight weeks into it, is a better way to look at it. And we, if we call a nine-page memo, you can get the nine pages sent to you, or it'll be 10 pages after this weekend, 11 pages after next weekend, so on and so forth. By the time we get back to active sailing, the classic next May, thing will probably out to 20 or 25 pages. Should be able to do a page weekend. The first page, and I apologize for those who don't have nine pages in front of them, and, and there'll be a new one up there every Monday. The first page was looking at Charter versus Comcast and looking at the cable part of Comcast. And as, as I was working on this, I decided that rather than look back four or five years and up to the interim to these companies, what I do is I try to take a picture, using my judgment, the most recent financial statements, 10Qs, or if 10K is more recent, and try to put down on a piece of paper uh, what the revenue is, 
what the cash costs are, what the capex is, what the income tax. Now you take the revenue and, and you 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 pull those numbers out. That comes down to free cash flow. Free cash flow or FCF is after you pay all your cash operating costs, your capex, your income tax, that's your free cash flow. Now free cash flow gets deployed really three ways. First of all, it can be retained, can be used to pay down debt, can be used for a dividend, can be used to repurchase stock. And if you have any debt, you have to pay interest out of free cash flow. And so having having looked at these two companies and I and thinking that, you know, there's probably a pretty good investment case for them. The other thing on these pages is what what has happened in, in the interim period. And in both these cases, at the time I did it, the original date of this was October 24th, uh, had six months financials for Charter and for Comcast. So have whether or not the revenue went up, whether or not the free cash flow went up. And in each case, the revenue went up and uh, and uh, and, the, and the free cash flow went up in each case. So the recent trend was good. In figuring out where to go after that, uh, I gravitated towards where we spent a lot of time on prior Wednesday meetings, and that is with the chip stock. So page two is NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, uh, Micron, and Qualcomm. And as you work with these sheets, I don't change the price from the day I did the sheet. So again, the price at 1014, uh, was uh, 112 for Netflix. Netflix has done well, and I'd like to just digress on page two and see if uh, Mike or Jason have anything to add in terms of how China's developing impact on NVIDIA and AMD, especially on chip licenses and things. I, I don't think, from my own reading and talking with Mike every morning, I don't think there's too much change there, but Rather than conclude that quickly, let's hear from Jason and Mike on how they how they think that the licenses for the more sophisticated chips are affecting NVIDIA and AMD. Yeah, I don't see much impact. And, and something to keep in mind on NVIDIA is they had a, a one-year exemption to be able to distribute their most advanced chips into China. So they might not see an impact if they do see one for another three quarters. Just a conversation that Jason and I have had, and we've discussed in the past, is that they're gonna, China's gonna figure out how to do what they want to do. We're gonna put some constraints on them, and they may have unintended consequences, either forcing them to develop their own semiconductor industry, or probably more shorter term, they'll be, they'll have different requirements in their software development. So they'll be working with different hardware. Maybe they'll end up writing more efficient or more creative software from, for artificial intelligence purposes. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other thing to point out is uh, one of the big worries of, or the reasons that we've enacted these uh, is that fear of use of military applications. I was reading something the other day that basically said that nothing being used in, in Ukraine right now is smaller than 40 nanometer. So if you think about the age of the technology that's there and what's being used in that war. So, you know, obviously it's a forward-looking sanction, but it, it's questionable as to whether that's actually the purpose. Mm-hmm. I should point out that both those companies have pretty good free cash flow, but 
but the free cash yield, I mean, NVIDIA, based on my calculations, at, at you know, at a lower price than current trading for about a 2.5% free cash yield and AMD at around 4.5%. But I'm I'm being pretty strict. In other words, I'm including all the CapEx. And we'll get to the commentary on software. I'm including taking out R&D, uh, sales costs, and everything. But to their credit, I mean, uh, NVIDIA has $7 billion of free cash flow and AMD has 4 Prospectively, they're going to lose because of these licenses and, and you know, NVIDIA, they lose because Ethereum is no longer mine. But still, pretty good interim performance from both those companies. When we turn to page three, and we're not going to get through all nine pages today. We'll have to pick it up next weekend. Page three is Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla. Why combine these three companies? What, what was I thinking on October 21st? Well, we, as you know from our Wednesday calls, we got an interest in Tesla because we're pretty sure that the best batteries in the world, both like, you know, both cost to make the batteries and performance of batteries, the CATL, which is, you know, if it were based in Taiwan or, or in the U.S., we would own CATL. But, of course, you have the additional risk if it's a Chinese company. But we kind of gravitated. BYD is also pretty good. BYD also makes cars. So we gravitated over to Tesla because Tesla has done a pretty good job of, of getting a, their second factory established in Shanghai. And of course, Tesla, you know, it's hard to imagine there's anyone out there who's had got more experience using batteries than Tesla. Why Apple? Why Alphabet? Well, these are tech companies that, that you know, have a fair amount of technology. Now, Apple, and we can talk about this, we get Jason Mike to talk about it, does have China exposure because Foxcom is their subcontractor making iPhones. Foxcom has a factory that's been under lockdown, a factory complex where 200,000 Chinese work, Chinese workers work, and a high portion of the iPhones sold in the world are made in that facility. So they definitely have China exposure. As far as Alphabet goes, no real China exposure. They kind of avoided China. And that created the opportunity for to do, you know, for Baidu to be the uh, the Google of uh, China. But still, interesting comparison. All these companies do have free cash flow. In terms of free cash yield, Apple was four percent at the time I did this. Alphabet was two and a half, and Tesla was one and a half. I think, I think I don't want to speak for Jason and Mike, but I think they're. And from an investment point of view, an interest in plus at a lower price. With that, I'm going to turn the remainder of our four or five minutes over to Jason and Mike to go through the pluses and minuses in these three companies. That means that next Wednesday we'll get going on uh, on page four, and and hopefully by next Wednesday. Well, I know by next Wednesday we'll have a tenth page, and uh, I promise you that we will not go back and do page one, two, and three again. But let's let's finish three for the remainder of our period today. So over to you, Mike. Okay. So what do you say, Jason? Let's let's break down Apple because they're in the news a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, most specifically, we remember the Epic lawsuit where Epic was trying to get out of paying the 30% fees to Apple. And, you know, I keep coming out on the side of Apple on this one basically because it's their system and the way they set it up. But the, you know, the other side of the story is that they are a monopoly, right? They have 
they, they determine who gets to come and go in the app store. And I think the conclusion that we came to last week is that they could probably maintain that 30% rate until it's so un unpopular that they're basically forced to back out of it. Well, now Elon Musk is going after Apple and the App Store fees, um, mainly because of two things. One, apparently Apple has pulled their advertising from Twitter. And now that Twitter is going to be charging $8 or $9 a month for access to, or at least for verified accounts on Twitter, they are expecting to pay 30% of that to Apple and they don't want to do it. Well, who better of a spokesperson than Elon Musk to get all the people that are developing apps and paying that 30% fee excited about the prospect of trying to turn that over. So uh, you now have politicians that are weighing in on this situation. It's kind of Apple's golden goose, right, Jason? I mean, what, what's your Absolutely. take on the situation? Yeah, I take the other side. I, I, I side with the developers being one that's had to put an app in the app store. They are the gatekeeper. They can take as long as they want to get your app in the app store. And that's kind of what they did with Fortnite, which is the game that Epic creates that kind of started this whole push against the 30%. They just kept stalling on it and saying, you can't, you can't direct people out of the app to pay the, pay your fees on a website uh, outside of the iPhone uh, and, and then not expect to pay that 30%. So they wouldn't they wouldn't push the app through. More recently, Spotify has has dealt with this. They were trying to get customers to sign up for their, you know, paid subscriptions on Spotify for podcasts and whatnot. And and they ultimately to get the app approved, they just couldn't accept people's payment. And and the, and Apple wouldn't even approve a, a statement that said, "Hey, log into the website and then pay there." They you just had no way to pay and therefore you couldn't subscribe most of and most of apple's revenue in the services side comes from games so a lot of the games are this freemium model you can download the game for free but to but to purchase different things within the game it kind of it means you have to do the the transaction in the app store in the app which which then apple takes their take on so i i think they've they've Pushed too hard on it. In the beginning, it made sense because they're building all this infrastructure, but it's gotten so big. I mean, it's 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 such a fee on all developers, and they have no other choice of how to distribute their app. So the the ultimate problem is that there's no competition among platforms. So one conclusion is that you could force Apple to allow side loading of other app stores, but that's a less than ideal solution. Another option would be maybe there could be another phone maker, right? Because so far, Apple and Android basically control the phone, smartphone operating system market. Sure enough, yes, inside of the last seven days, Elon Musk apparently said that he would be willing to, to build a phone if he had to, to make Twitter work, assuming Apple and Google did not reduce their platform fees. So. I guess if there's one person that's got the willingness to take on the largest company in the world, I believe Apple is, um, it's got to be Elon Musk. So <laughs> it's, it's even more fitting beyond batteries that Tesla's on this chart. I have a question. If, if you have an iPhone and you want an app, you want Spotify, you're listening to the Telltale, what's your alternative? I mean, I, 
I mean, Musk is making the point that it's a duopoly. It's Apple and, and, and Google or Alphabet. But I mean, is the App Store for Alphabet just on, on their system? I mean, you, you, they, they can't compete and get you on to the Apple software, I assume. That's correct. Both the App Store for Apple and the App Store, they call it the Google Play Store for Android. Those are completely independent. Um, and the, the development environments are completely different. And, in, and even further, is, uh, Apple kind of has a lock on the, the majority of the higher income individuals are on iPhone. And if you want to advertise to them, you need to be in the App Store advertising on iPhones. Well, you get plenty to think about in the intervening week. By the way, you know, Jason and Mike and I are the only ones who can ask questions. We, we tried having, you know, open mics and it just didn't work. But if you email into, uh, into Mike or into Diane, we'll do our best to uh, treat with the questions the next week. And uh, in the meantime, everyone uh, be well and stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk again uh, in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.